Hey everyone, welcome to the Jesus Church Podcast. You're listening to a teaching from our Sunday gathering. We exist to join God in the renewal of all things by becoming a unified, spirit-filled family that follows the way of Jesus. And our desire is to come alongside you to encourage and equip you for that journey. So if we can serve you in any way, please reach out to us through our website at ajesuschurch.org connect. As always, we hope that this teaching increases your hope and deepens your faith. Today's reading is from Exodus, verse, chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Okay, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word and that you sent your spirit to bring it alive and to show us things. And we want to catch anything that you want to show us today. So open our hearts and open our minds and grab our attention with the things that you want to do in our lives. So we submit ourselves to you, Jesus. Amen. Okay. Thank you, Steve. And grab a seat, everyone. Welcome to Jesus Church. Uh, It's an exciting time because we've just finished our Going Deeper series, uh, and we're about to now step into a new series in Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, or I'm now, I don't even know how I used to say it. I'm completely confused. Apparently, there's some sort of Anglo-US, we need to get a ruling on how to say this word correctly. Uh, But whatever it is, uh, that's what we're diving into. It's really exciting. Uh, I do want to give you like a hot tip. Uh, are there any gamers in the room? Okay. Yeah, it's like, not, not many. I wonder if some people are like nervous, because like, are we allowed to like gaming? You know, like is that? There's, so for going deeper, that conversation, there's a secret level, okay? So we didn't get to talk on Sunday about going deeper in our worship. And so we grabbed Zylesia and Jordi, and we did a podcast, the House of Learning podcast, uh, last week was about that. It was a really fun conversation. I did it with Steve. Um, so just search for House of Learning wherever you get your podcasts. That's a really good listen. And that helps wrap up that conversation. And now we're into Habakkuk. Uh, and I've got a hot tip for you. So hopefully you'll read the book of Habakkuk with us uh, as we go along. Um, But if you want to read something alongside it, I'd love to recommend this. It's called Trembling Faith by Taylor Turkington. And really fun, Uh, Taylor is like a new friend. Uh, She did a PhD on Habakkuk, which is amazing. And we sort of discovered uh, that she's actually at 26 West, which is a church we love and helped plant in Hillsborough. We're like, oh my goodness. And so she's been a great resource to us. And it's really fun. Uh, reading a book about Habakkuk, Habakkuk from a Portlander. Like, you know, she's trying to apply like what God's taught her to our local context, which is uh, amazing. It's a really great, very readable commentary to go alongside reading Habakkuk. So uh, if you get it, you won't be disappointed. And if you uh, don't have a Bible today, as we get into things, wave your hand in the air and someone will hand you a Bible this morning. If you don't have a Bible, keep it. We'd love you to have a Bible. Take it home with you. Um, and yeah, let's, let's get into Habakkuk. And it's a bit weird because we're going to get into Habakkuk, but we read Exodus. Uh, 
So the job today is to set up diving into the book of Habakkuk. Uh, this, so this is our very short introduction. Uh, I say very short because I heard a couple of weeks ago you had a guy teaching. Uh, it went kind of along. Um, so I'm going to do a tight five today, guys. Um, so let me, let me give you the inside scoop on why we're in Habakkuk, okay? Because I'm really excited about this book. Uh, the short answer is we prayed, God led us there, uh, you know, that, which is the best answer. But as we've been exploring and preparing and praying, there are themes in Habakkuk that keep showing up in our church and in our context. And it's like, oh man, God's been, he's been preparing us for the conversation that we need to have next. And Habakkuk seems to be where that, that conversation lives. And so I, I can see us sort of crescendoing into it, which is really exciting. And Habakkuk's got these big questions that he grapples with. Questions like this. Where is God when it's falling apart? What difference does faith make? Uh, how can faith persevere? in the face of injustice and suffering? And how can we find hope when things are hard? I mean, kind of heavy, right? But aren't those some of our deepest questions? Like, we've all got loads of questions we're interested in, but there are some questions where we're like, I really need an answer to this one, because this question really matters. And like, these are some of the questions that Habakkuk deals with. And it's this really short book, it's only three chapters, but it gets into some really profound things. So let me tell you a bit about the book of Habakkuk. So it's at the end of the Old Testament, um, and it's one, he's one of the minor prophets. That doesn't mean like insignificant. It's just that the prophets who wrote uh, these works, some of them wrote big works like Isaiah and Ezekiel, and some of them wrote shorter works. And those shorter works actually make up this thing called the Book of the Twelve. It's these 12 minor prophets. And uh, he's in the middle there. And they cover this period of the sort of decline of the kingdom of God's people, their exile into Babylon, and then, then coming back into the land and trying to think what's going to happen next. And so it sort of sets the stage, this uh, book of the 12, for understanding how God's plan is unfolding towards Jesus arriving. Uh, and so he's, he's in the middle. Um, so quick history lesson, so we can sort of put him on a timeline, okay? So God's people, way back when, okay, they were in Egypt and God rescued them and there was this exodus with Moses. You remember the story? Maybe not all of it, but you remember that that happened. And about 50 years after the Exodus, because they wandered in the wilderness for a while because they needed to learn some things, but they battled their way into the promised land and got established. So that's about 1450 BC. Or if you're not good with numbers, a really, really long time ago. Uh, and then they're, they're established in the promised land and they're led by judges, which is, uh, that's the next book in the Bible after you get the first five books that Moses wrote called Judges. And it's a short book, but actually that was 400 years that they were led by judges. A crazy period. There's some highs, but some cataclysmic lows in there as well. And eventually they asked for a king. And uh, they sort of have this, they bargain, basically, with God. Like, no, 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 we want to be like the other nations. Give us a king. We're, that's how we want to be led. And so God gives them this king, Saul. He's the first king of Israel. That's about 1095. And Saul... Not the best guy. But then you get King David, who's an amazing king. 
And, and, and the pattern starts to unfold of like good king, bad king, bad king, good king. And, and, and there's fluctuating quality of kings and fluctuating quality of how things are going in the nation of Israel. And the tensions built between, especially between the north and the south of the, the people of God, the kingdom, and eventually the north splits off from the south. This is where it gets a little confusing. So that happens uh, about 150 years later, about 930. Um, they were called the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. But then as they split, the southern kingdom, it, it goes by the name Judah, the kingdom of Judah, which is confusing because Judah is also the name of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, so you've got to pay attention when you read your Bible. Is it talking about the tribe or the kingdom? And then the northern kingdom took the name, the kingdom of Israel, which is confusing because that was the name for the unified kingdom before. So it's almost like it's trying to confuse us, but I promise you it's not. You just, we've got to pay attention to the details. Anyway, the northern kingdom, Israel, they continue to fluctuate. Good kings, bad kings, good times, bad times. God's sending them prophets. He's trying to get their attention. He's trying to lead and guide them. But they decline. And about 200 years later, they're actually taken out and destroyed by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom lasts a bit longer. But it's still this fluctuating story. And so about 350 years later, the Babylonian Empire come in and they take the southern kingdom captive into exile in Babylon. And this is where we find Habakkuk. Habakkuk is writing to the kingdom of Judah, the people of Judah, just before that exile happens. So the exile happens about 590, and Habakkuk's writing about like 600 to 620, so sort of 10 to 30 years before the exile. And so Habakkuk's, like his circumstances, like the world stage that Habakkuk is on, is he's watching this sort of geopolitical change because the kingdom of Assyria, that was the world empire, like the superpower of its time, was crumbling. And this new superpower, Babylon, is rising. And it's a time of sort of change. It's a time of political upheaval. And in his nation, in Judah, it's a time marked by violence and injustice uh, and idolatry. Uh, do, you know, does this sound familiar at all? You know, is, is there a sense in which like, the life and times of Habakkuk sound a little bit like the description of the life of times of someone living in Portland? You know, like trouble and injustice and upheaval and idolatry. So we can really associate with Habakkuk. And Habakkuk wrote alongside some other prophets that you might have heard of as well. Jeremiah, Jeremiah the weeping prophet. He was one of those major prophets, wrote a long work. And he's called the weeping prophet because he's just bemoaning and lamenting the decline of God's people and just seeing what's going to happen, seeing the consequences coming. Uh, and then uh, Zephaniah and Nahum, a couple of the minor prophets that are writing at this time as well, warning God's people about their sin, about judgment, about the consequences. Um, so having mentioned a bunch of prophets and said Habakkuk is a prophet, we should have a little conversation about what a prophet is. Because our sort of modern box for what a prophet is uh, may be a little bit different than what an Old Testament prophet actually was. So back in the time of Habakkuk in the kingdom of Judah, they had kings and they had priests. And this is two groups of people that had 
spiritual and religious influence, but it wasn't really their home base. Like the kings, their home base was governance, like civil and military governance and leadership. And then you had priests, and they ran the mechanisms of the temple, and they were the sort of the patterns and habits of spiritual life by which the people could interact with God and meet with God. But the prophets, they didn't have that same like official position in the structure of things. They were more itinerant. They were kind of outsiders, which is really interesting because if the king said something, you had to do it. Otherwise, like it wasn't going to go well, okay? But the prophets, you know, they were kind of sharing with people what God had to say. But if, if you didn't listen, then you just didn't listen. So really different interaction with the prophets. Uh, and the prophets were people that you could go to if you wanted to know what God thought of something. And so you see this all through, uh, not just like the history of Israel, but even before that, when people were like, I want to inquire, I want to find out what God thinks about something. You could go find a prophet. So a prophet was this sort of person who was in between the people and God to facilitate communication. And they would uh, listen to God and share God's message with the people. And so Habakkuk, uh, Jeremiah, Isaiah, like all these prophets we read about in our Bible, they wrote their message or it was recorded so we can sort of capture what God was saying to the people at the time. And sometimes they performed miracles to sort of substantiate that they were sent from God, to, to help people understand that this is a message that should be listened to. Now, when we think prophet, we also tend to think it's like, okay, here's the future. Like, I'm going to prophesy. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen, like, next Thursday. But actually, only a tiny percent, like a handful of percent of the writings of the prophets had to do with things that were in their future. Nearly all of it had to do with current events. It was God saying, like, here's what's going on. Here's how I feel about what's going on. Here's what I'm doing in the middle of what's going on. Calling out sin, calling people to repent, reminding people of God's ways, guiding them back to the way they should be living, things like that. And situating what's happening in God's big, big story and relating it to God's plan. And, and so that was the work of a prophet. That's what we're going to see showing up as we read the prophets. But... The book of Habakkuk is actually a little unusual because most of the prophets, their writings, uh, it's, it's them addressing the people. It's them calling things out to the nation. But with Habakkuk, it's almost like we get this private look at him talking to God. So Habakkuk's got three parts. There's two dialogues and then a song or a psalm. And the first two dialogues, it's actually Habakkuk talking to God. And saying, God, like I just, I got questions. Like all those big questions we started with. And he's processing and wrestling with those things with God. And it's like we just, we peel back the curtain and we get access to something quite private. But what we see through those dialogues is the, the kind of angst and wrestling and questions that Habakkuk has. They join up with hope. And then they give birth to part three, which is this song, this psalm extolling God, this God of salvation, this God of hope. And that psalm, that becomes something that then becomes like on the set list of God's people forever. 
So I, I love that sort of dynamic that Habakkuk wrestles, but that's able to then produce something that actually points us towards hope forever and ever. So it's, a, it's an amazing flow to the book. Now, if we're going to read Habakkuk and understand like, where he's coming from, we need to know a little bit more about the backdrop. And there's a couple of things that are really going to help us, uh, a couple of fancy words, fancy concepts. One is covenant, and the other one is exile. So we've got to just take a little bit of time, wrap our head around those. And that's why we started with reading Exodus. So a covenant is a special partnership between God and a person or a group of people. So it's a, it's a relationship and a partnership where there's like something that's going to be done together and there's an agreement with both sides. Like they both make a commitment to the partnership and to each other. It's very much like being under contract, but it's a contract that's about a partnership. And to understand this, we're going to go back to Genesis, which I know like every time, I would say every, I was going to say every other time, I think it literally is every time I teach, I'm like, let's go back to Genesis. So here we go once again, back to Genesis. So in the beginning, God creates humans to be these partners, okay? And they, they are to be God's image bearers, to spread God's glory through creation by being fruitful and multiplying. So they're, they're, they're created for and in this partnership. And God blesses them with all they need to flourish in the partnership. And bless is like, that's a key word, that's an important word, it's like a technical word. Like sometimes we say like, oh, God bless you, you know. I mean, we say it when we sneeze, uh, for a really weird historical reason, by the way, but you can Google that later. Um, and sometimes we think bless just means like, go you. Like, I just want to smile and help you feel encouraged. But when God blesses, it's more substantial. It's God saying, hey, I'm going to stand behind you. I'm going to be with you. The things you need to do this, I'm going to provide. Like what it takes for this thing to happen, you can expect from me. That's the kind of relationship of blessing. So God blessed Adam and Eve in the garden so they could flourish. But they had a commitment to keep as well. They had a condition in the covenant. They had to trust God to be their source of life. And they had to trust God to be their guide in the ways of goodness. So when it came to like the source, it's God. And when it came to how are we going to do it, they needed to look to God as well. And these weren't like any old conditions. It's not like God was like, oh, I want to test you. I want to see if you're listening. So, you know, like wear red next Sunday so I can tell whether you're listening. You know, it's like, it, it wasn't like that. These conditions actually describe for Adam and Eve what the path of blessing looks like. It's like God saying, okay, there's this zone where you're going to flourish. There's this way of being where this partnership is going to work. And your commitment is to stay in that zone. To stay in that zone, you need to trust me as the source and you need to trust me and let me guide you. You need those things so that it'll work. So by keeping their commitment, they would stay connected to the blessing they needed to flourish. So the condition wasn't like, do this, like impress me. And then like, if you impress me enough, then I'll bless you. It's not like a reward. It's more, hey, I want to bless you. You need to commit to staying in this place where I can bless you. Does that make sense? Now, we know how the story goes. They don't keep the commitment. They break it. 
they seize trying to flourish themselves by their own power and by their own methods. And they're tragically deceived by the serpent in doing this. And as a consequence, they experience a curse. Now again, like a curse, it's not like God's like, oh, I'm going to be mean to you. Like you really upset me. Like may all your hair fall out. You know, just like I'm, I'm going to be mean to you. Like interesting story, actually. <laughs> no. Um, that was just what happened when we, got, when we had kids. It's not a curse. It's, it's just a consequence, okay? Um, but the curse they experience is it's not revenge. It's the consequence that they become separated from the way of flourishing. And it's really interesting. They seize control and then it starts to go badly. But what God does is he doesn't seize control back, but he allows their choice to play out because he wants to teach them. He wants them to understand what they've done. And the way becomes hard. Their, their way of life very quickly begins to reflect the way of the serpent. They experience pain and isolation and death. And they also have to leave the garden. And the garden was, it was home. And by home, I don't mean like it's where they lived. It, it's not like home in the sense of their address, like Adam and Eve, the garden, creation. You know, like that's what they put on their, their cards at Christmas time. It was home in the sense that it was that secure place of thriving where they were safe and they had access to everything they needed to flourish. If, if they were a plant, it would be like that good soil with like worm poop and bone marrow, like all the stuff in and the environment being just what was needed for them to be what they were supposed to be. That sense of home. But they couldn't experience the garden as home anymore because of the brokenness in them. And they became exiles. The brokenness, the corruption inside of them means that the garden can't be their home anymore and they experience homelessness. And as their choice plays out, as they leave the garden, they go and they attempt to create home outside of the garden. But it doesn't work. And humans keep trying to do it and it doesn't work. Because the way of the serpent, it can't create true home. It's like it can only get a pale reflection of it that leaves us longing for that real deep true sense of home that God actually created us for. And in the midst of that tension, as they step into being exiles, though, God promises that exile is not the end of the story. So there's good news happening as well. God promises, he says, I am going to remove the curse and I'm going to restore the partnership of blessing. And I'm going to defeat evil and right injustice. And that brings us to Habakkuk and the covenants that would have been really formative for Habakkuk's way of thinking. See, when it comes to the, the how, like how does God's initial promise to deal with the problem play out, God actually uses partnership as part of his method. So he chooses Abraham and says, I'm going to partner with you. And then Abraham becomes this nation Israel, and God says, I'm going to partner with you, and we're going to do this thing, like curse removal, restoration, like this work that needs to be done, I'm going to do it with you. And he does it by establishing covenants. That's the framework then within which God's going to work. And in these covenants that God made with Abraham and Israel, 
he promises to bring flourishing to them, to bring blessing to them. He promises to bless them. And again, blessing isn't just like, you know, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to smile at you and cheer every time you walk past. But like, I'm going to make a difference. You're going to experience flourishing instead of the curse. You're going to experience the undoing of the conditions of exile because of what I do. That was his promise to them. And God promises to use them as restoration partners. So to fulfill that promise, he says, I'm going to do it and you're going to be a part of it. And they have a commitment as well. Commitments on both sides. They need to trust God and they need to follow God's laws. And the laws, again, it wasn't God was just like, you know, uh, you know, only wear white after Labor Day and like, you know, like just some funky things. But the laws, they actually defined that blessing zone. They described what that zone was and how to get in it and how to live in it. They were a guide about how to be the blessed people. And notice that the ask God makes in the covenants is not a new thing. The ask, the commitment, is actually to get back to a garden relationship with God, to trust God as the source and to trust God as the guide. It's a return. It's actually a restoration of something. Um, And what they they need is to kind of come to God open-handedly. Like, stop seizing, stop grasping, stop trying to create home by your own methods and actually come to me as someone who will provide. What they need is faith. That posture of coming like that, expecting and needing God to do something, and interacting with God in a way that allows room for God to do something, that's faith. And so that's why we began with reading Exodus. So let's, let's come back to it, let's read it. So Exodus, uh, this is one of the um, times that God articulates this covenant to the people. He says, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you're supposed to speak to the Israelites. I love that. It's like here's the identity you're going to speak over God's people and keep reminding them of this dynamic. This is what I say is true of them. This is my posture to them, and this is the opportunity that's in front of them. If they obey, if they follow, if they trust, if they have faith, active faith, then they will flourish. There'll be this kingdom of priests. They will flourish in this partnership as priests, being representatives of God, a restoration of being image bearers, and a kingdom of priests. They will have this kingly role restored to them as rulers, partners with God in ruling creation and caring for creation. So again, it's all this restoration of the garden stuff. Later in uh, Deuteronomy, at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 30, so Moses has like walked with the Israelites, you know, all sorts of crazy stuff, Exodus, they've wandered around in the wilderness, done laps around the Sinai Peninsula as God's been teaching them lessons, and they're about ready to go into the promised land and see the the covenant come to life and take a a step forward. And Moses lays out the covenant again before the people. So I'm just going to read this. Moses says, See, 
I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. I mean, that's an opening line, right? If I got up on a Sunday and said that to you, I mean, it'd be a little weird and hardcore, but that would get your attention, right? He's really like, guys, this is serious. There's something important I'm laying before you. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase. You will be fruitful and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land you're entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you're drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. You will experience exile. This day I call the heavens and the earth as a witness against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. So there's a promise to bless the path of obedience, the path where faith is activated instead of seizing and its consequences. And it's a warning that leaving that path will lead to the consequences of seizing. The same things, death, isolation, hardship, pain, exile. And throughout the history of God's people after this, their choices fluctuate. You would think, right, Deuteronomy 30, how are you gonna like listen to that and then go and like break the covenant. But it's what happens. And they, they have moments where their faith is active and they're guided by God, they're following God and radical things happen. God blesses them in ways that only God could have come up with, like really surprising ways. There's miraculous provisions and protection and victories. And faith allows them to do things that they would never have thought of. Like they enter the promised land. One of the first things is like, there's this massive city, Jericho. What are we going to do? And God's like, you know what you should do? You should like have a worship gathering and just like walk around it all day. Like no one's thinking of that. But it's not just in these military things. It's also in terms of their culture and way of life. Without God, without faith, without coming to God like this, they would never have thought, you know what? We should treat slaves in a radically better way than every other nation. They would never have come up with it. And there's all these kind of moments. And you see, faith is key because it makes room for God to do things his way with his partners, with us. Like faith is that dynamic that allows God to do his thing. And let me, like his thing is so much bigger and so much better. We can't do it by ourselves and we would never have even come up with it by ourselves. So without faith, there's some really amazing things that are just off the table. And I, I'm really excited about this. So I think this is one of the things God's really going to pursue in us through this book of Habakkuk. And it, it already has been coming up. Like last week, Pam was up with Tim. And one of the things she said, and my ears picked up uh, on it, I was like, yes, like that's something that I keep hearing in our church. She said, obey God, even when it sounds crazy. Because that's the dynamic of faith. Like faith is able to take us out of the little box we've made and get us into this giant, big Jesus-shaped box. And so sometimes it does feel crazy. And God is after our faith. He's pursuing us for our faith. And faith, it's not the, 
the demand of an insecure narcissist. It's not like God's on Instagram, you know, just like, ah, like I, I wanna get more followers. Like I wish I could just get a few more, you know? Like that's not the dynamic. Faith is this relationship that allows God to keep us safe. He's after our faith so he can care for us. And faith is the dynamic where God gets to use us, where God gets to do the stuff he promised to do. It, it allows the partnership to flourish. It, this is a... This is something we're going to be talking about in communities this week. Uh, re like really excited to get into it. The, again, House of Learning podcast. We had a, uh, Steve who uh, was reading, me and Steve and Angela had a massive conversation about what faith actually is. Because I feel like it's a word we use in loads of different ways. And just trying to think that through. And by the way, if you're not in a community, don't forget we've talked about, we've got these community pop-ups happening. So if you're not in a community group, you can come. I think this week's at five guys. So it's like a burger hang out with me and Nicole, and uh, talk about faith. It's going to be really good, pardon me, really good fun. And so I invite you to come join that conversation this week. We've got them going every week. So that, like, that's the positive. That's the encouraging, right? But God's people, they don't make the right choice. They, they keep on not choosing faith, and they keep seizing. And they experience times when they don't trust God. They keep taking things back and doing them their way. And they end up turning to gods who embody the way of the serpent, to idols that align with the values of self. And they experience exile. And sometimes it means like actually like get out of the land, but often it's just enemies in the land, meaning that they're not able to experience the place where they are as home. See, exile is not a way for God to get rid of people he's frustrated with. Like, has, has anyone, any parents ever done the parent fail where you sent your kid to the bottom step? Not to, like, give them space to learn and teach them and things like that, but just because you were going to murder them and you were so angry. <laughs> I, I can tell by the laugh. Anyone who laughed, that was a yes. Okay? Um, and if you're not a parent, were you ever a kid that experienced a parent doing something like that? That's not what God's like. That's not what God's doing. See, exile is God's tool to try to create an awareness in us that we're not home. What God's doing is he's trying to awaken faith. God wants his people to know that they are in the wrong zone, that they've left the blessing zone. And he, he doesn't want them thinking they've got home and being deceived by the serpent. He wants them to be aware that they're not home. And not only that, not only is God trying to awaken faith and build that awareness, God actually invites people back. God graciously has this posture that as people repent and try to get back in the zone, he rejoices and forgives them. It's, it's really, yeah, like God's much better than all the rest of us when it comes to parenting us and caring for us. God doesn't do parent fails. And God's people experience this time and time again. Like moments of renewal, moments of return, moments of them realizing and God getting their attention again and faith rising. And like even as they return from the exile in Babylon, like it, that wasn't forever, it wasn't the end of the story. They ended up coming back to the land. But even as they did, the land was still full of enemies. And it wasn't long before faith faltered and the way of the serpent came back. And what they experienced is this pattern that speaks not just to us and them, but every human since the garden. And it's this realization that we're just, we're not home. 
we're not fully home. And the beautiful hope that God has promised to send a king that will fully rescue his people and get them all the way home. God will fully establish that restored blessing. He'll fully free us from seizing and deception and the way of the serpent. And that's Jesus. That's the new covenant in Jesus, which is a whole big conversation we could talk about, but we're not going to because I I said I'm not going to go too long. But Jesus, see, he became an exile. He left heaven and became a human in sinful flesh to make a new way out of exile. And he's inviting us to join his new covenant family to experience a renewal and a restoration. And that's what we sit in. We sit in the now and not yet of like, man, there's like, we're getting tastes of home and it's coming, but we're not all the way there yet. Now, I said you needed to understand this sort of dynamic of covenant and exile because that's how we make sense of Habakkuk. So just to finish up, like, let's get back to him because he's been patiently waiting here. Like, just are you ever going to talk about Habakkuk? And we're not even going to read Habakkuk today. Habakkuk 1.1 is next week, but we're, we're setting it up so that we can receive it. Well, in Judah at the time, there were people like Habakkuk who had that faith. Like they had, they had that identity, like, yeah, God's, like God's gonna show up. God's gonna use me as a partner. God's gonna bless me. But they were the minority. By and large, people, would, they had just bought into idolatry and the way of the serpent was rife and there's violence and injustice everywhere. And the interesting thing about Habakkuk is he had experienced some amazing things. You see, when he was a young man, there was a good king called Josiah, and you can read about him in 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23, which if you want some extra homework, it's an amazing read. And Josiah, he becomes king, eight years old, and he's this good king with this heart for God, and he starts restoring the temple that's fallen into disrespair, disrepair because of idolatry. And while they're repairing the temple, they discover the scroll of the law. See, idolatry had been so rife, they'd actually had to hide it so it didn't get destroyed. And so, you know, the, the priests restoring the temple bring the scroll and like, oh, we found this. And Josiah's like, we should read it. And he's listening to it. And remember, he's probably like eight, nine, ten years old. Okay? And, it, and they read the law and he tears his clothes and he's weeping and upset. And he's like, we've broken so much of the covenant. He's traumatized by their failure. And he goes and inquires of the Lord, sends to a prophet And it's like, what should we do? What's going to happen? Which is an expression of faith. And there's revival. Like God blesses Josiah. And Josiah, like he sweeps idolatry out of the land and restores the worship of God. And and they experience uh, flourishing and thriving. Like things start humming. Things work well. And like how deeply this must have affected Habakkuk. As someone who has faith, who had expectation, who knew like the covenant set a framework for them to think God was going to do these good things. And he saw it happen. He he rode the wave of that high, like amazing. But bang, it doesn't last. And part of of the, the sort of geopolitics that was troubling Habakkuk is as the Assyrian empire began to crumble and the Babylonians were rising, Egypt in the south saw the Assyrian uh, empire kind of breaking up and thought, yeah, we'll have a piece of that. 
I'm like, let's go get some slaves or some gold or, I don't know, some widgets, it's like something. So they cross Judah to go and attack. But while they're crossing Judah, they have a battle with Josiah and Josiah gets killed by this Pharaoh Necho. Tragic, at 39 years old. So like Habakkuk's world comes crumbling down. And not just that, but things turn sour really quickly. So uh, Josiah's king, Jehoiahaz, rules next, okay? And he is evil. And he's so bad that three months later, okay, he's pulled into exile by Pharaoh Necho. He's like so bad that even Pharaoh Necho is like, we've got to get rid of you. You are a wrong one. But then it doesn't get better. So Pharaoh Necho then establishes another of Josiah's sons, Eliakim, on the throne as a puppet king. And not only that, he changes Eliakim's name. Uh, Eliakim means God will establish to Jehoiakim, which means Yahweh will establish. So what Pharaoh Necho is doing is he's changing his name. He's, this is spiritual manipulation. He's using this special covenant name, Yahweh, the name of Israel's God, to legitimize the way he's manipulating the politics of Judah. He's appealing to religion, not, not as anything to do with God, but just as a political tool to score political points. Sound familiar? That's our world too, right? Yeah, Habakkuk's pretty close to home. And Jehoiakim, he's a really bad dude. He is evil. He embodies the way of the serpent. He's exploiting the people instead of caring for them. He raises taxes to pay for this lavish lifestyle. He uses slaves and abuses the people to build lavish buildings. He worships at the altar of self and power. And idolatry becomes rife. And actually, he uses idolatry as a way to control the people and please Pharaoh Necho. So worship, rather than being about coming to Yahweh like this, becomes this cheap tool for gain. Like really, really sad. And how this must have cut to the heart of Habakkuk. Like how, how on earth, when you've crashed from that high to this low, does faith and hope engage what's in front of you? How do you, how do you make any sense of what you see when you walk out the door? And like that's where Habakkuk's questions are coming from. Because Habakkuk, he understood that there was hope for the end game. It's like, man, God said, like, this exile out of the garden is not the end of the story. God's going to deal with it. And I thought God was doing something, and now, but now what? Where are you, God? Why is this happening? See, it's really difficult to have hope in the present here and now of hard things, isn't it? That's like, that's when it's really hard to have faith make, an, make a, a tangible difference. And it's in this moment that we meet Habakkuk writing and dialoguing with God. And th this is a really beautiful moment. Because in Habakkuk's moment of desperate need, God responds to his questions. God's not hiding, he's not silent, he's not away. He's present with Habakkuk, engaging his faith. God cares for Habakkuk. God doesn't leave him alone. Like that's the kind of God we serve when we've got questions like this. And that gets to the, the invitation I want us to have as we sort of consider these things and try to tune in to the stuff in our heart that I think God wants to speak to through Habakkuk. You see, this God who does radically unexpected things is calling for our faith. 
But it's really hard to trust. It's hard to exercise faith when the unexpected happens, especially when the unexpected is happening and there's a bunch of suffering involved. And, and I think what happens is, is we understand that we can grab a hold of the end of the story, that we can have hope that we'll get out of it one day. It's like an anchor for hope, like Jesus, the resurrection, like Jesus is coming back, like it's, he's gonna take care of business. And that is an anchor for hope and we should do that. But God's got more than just that. That's what Habakkuk's craving. It's like, yeah, I understand that, but what about now? Like, do you have faith and hope that really changes the here and now? That's the challenge of Habakkuk. Because sometimes I know we, we avoid fully acknowledging the present because it's hard. And I'm like, my goodness, do we live in a culture where avoidance and escapism is really easy? That's, that's our world, right? That's our culture's superpower. Okay, and they're avoiding and escaping. What God is trying to reveal is like, you're not home, but I want to do something about it. And I want, to do, I want to do something that engages you in the here and now. So would you stand with me? I've got like a, a few things that I want you to sort of take away and consider that I think Jesus is inviting us into in this series. And maybe God's going to sort of spark something in your heart now, but maybe it's just something to, to ponder and pray about this week. So I think God is inviting us to allow him to help us fully acknowledge how we are. To fully acknowledge how we are. To allow ourselves to be affected by the present world around us. That we don't have to like bury our head in the sand. That we can actually look up, we can walk the streets of Portland and look at what's going on and actually look at it. Because God's got something to say about it that we can bring more of our whole self to him so that he can bring more of himself to us. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to partner with us through giving, visit us at ajesuschurch.org.